Welcome to Book Wandering with me, Anna James, the podcast where I talk to another writer about their most beloved children's or YA book. I'm the author of the children's fantasy series Pages & Co and an arts journalist, and for this first episode, I'm joined by Catherine Rundle. Catherine is one of my most impressive friends, both the youngest ever female fellow of All Souls College in Oxford, but also the youngest winner of the Bailey Gifford Prize for her glorious biography of John Donne, Super Infinite. She's also an award-winning author of children's books, including Rooftoppers and The Explorer. And the book Catherine chose is one of our mutual favourites, Diana Wynne-Jones's Charmed Life, the first book in the Crestomancy series, which was first published in 1977. And before we get into the episode, just to quickly note that while the podcast is largely suitable for children, this isn't geared at younger listeners. Thank you so much for coming and being part of Book Wandering. Uh, it is lovely to have you as the very first episode. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I was delighted to uh, kick things off with uh, with you and this book, partly, well, for many reasons, partly you've chosen a book that I probably would have chosen if someone had asked me this question, um, partly because you are, of course, a very dear friend, uh, and partly because uh, you wrote a glorious essay called Why You Should Read Children's Books, even though you are so old and wise, um, which I think sums up much of what I am wanting to explore. Uh, so I was hoping we could start there. So could you tell me a little bit about that book essay pamphlet and how it came about? Absolutely. So it's published as a book, but it is really a kind of polemic. Um, why you should read children's books, even though you are so old and wise. And it comes from the fact that I had been realizing for about a decade um, I have two jobs and one of them is I'm a fellow of All Souls College in Oxford where I work on Renaissance literature and the other one is I'm a children's writer and people treat you very differently according to which job you say you do and if you say you're a children's writer you are often given a smile as if you have declared like it says in the book that you spend your time making little matchbox furniture out of toothpicks for the elves. People look at you as if you have confessed yourself to be essentially childish. And I wanted to argue with the book that there is something in it which if we discard it, if we discard children's fiction and adulthood, we lose not just a kind of rampant joy, but also a kind of knowledge. Because I think what children's fiction is often trying to do is to distill tighter and tighter, some of the most vulnerable truths of the human heart. It is often written, it's written for children, so it's written for people who are without political power or enfranchisement, and so it often thinks about what will remain when those things are stripped away. And it is people trying to express, to prove in longhand, ideas like love will matter, truth will matter, endurance will matter, and the book says, if you imagine those things being tightened and tightened because children will not wait around while you self-congratulate or pontificate, <laughs> what you get is a kind of distillation, a kind of sort of literary vodka. And I think that they can be a place to go to remember what it is to read as an act of discovery. When the world was still new and before imagination had become kind of portrayed you in adulthood as something that's an optional extra, mm. a kind of defibrillation for the original beating heart. And so I just wanted to suggest that children's fiction has in it 
something wild. And of course, also very important to note, children's fiction is not divorced from the political moment of the time. So, you know, often what children's fiction has been telling children is that the best thing you can be is middle class, white, rich, thin, and ideally a boy. And of course, children's fiction is is mired in the moment of its own creation, of course. But there are these books which sort of shine through history, which I think can tell you so much about what it is to be human. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, that that look that I'm a children's writer look is, I'm sure, very familiar. It's very familiar to me and I'm sure will be familiar to any other people who write for children. And you start the the essay with the, uh, yes, the famous Martin Amos uh, quote about how he would only write for children if he had a brain injury. And uh, the Alan Garner, well, this is not to be laid at the door of Alan Garner, but uh, for his adult book, um, a quote was chosen that, what was it? It deemed him not just, or was it not just a children's writer, more than a children's writer, something that basically, this is good because it is not a children's book. Exactly. The idea that he is not a children, children, never just a children's writer because he is something stranger and bolder than that, I think. And the idea that in some way, when you write for children, what you do is you strip away your unease, your ambition, your your strangeness. I think that that speaks to a lot of the ways we think about, of course, also the way we think about children. I mean, of course, you can't think about children's fiction without thinking about the way a society figures children, the kind mm. of anti-child quality of English culture and indeed <laughs> the misogyny of it. Yep. Um, but I mostly just wanted to say, if you read children's fiction, you will be reminded of things that you have forgotten, you have forgotten, you have forgotten. (laughs) And I think that can be deeply worth doing. Yes. And speaking of the strange and the bold, uh, the author and the book that you have chosen is an excellent example of the strange and the bold, um, Diana Wynne-Jones, Charmed Life in particular. So could you tell me a bit about how you first encountered that book and Diana Wynne-Jones generally? So... Diana Wynne Jones' Charmed Life, I think, is one of my candidates, one of the finest children's books ever written. And I was I heartily it. agree. Exactly. I mean, she is just astonishing. And of course, if you speak, she is, um, as Frank Cottrell Boy says, a real children's writer's children's writer. Mm. It, it, it's hard to find a children's writer who isn't in love with her. I think the reason that I have loved her, there are so many, but the primary one is that she refuses to talk down to children. Mm-hmm. She has no truck with the idea of simplification. She approaches children with her ironical eyebrows worn high. <laughs> and Charmed Life is one of the books in the Crestomancy series. And I think, I think probably the best one to start with. It's not the first chronologically in the way that they play out, but um you get Christomancy here as an adult. And then if you fall in love with it, you can go back to the lives of Christopher Chant and meet Christomancy as a child. Christomancy is a role, um, a, a government role, where the Christomancy's job is to control the use of magic in all the magical worlds. There are many worlds. One of them is our world. And this one is sort of laced with some Victoriana, some Edwardiana, and... The Christomancy always has to be a nine-lived enchanter, which makes him the most powerful enchanter in the magical worlds. And it all makes such perfect sense. And it (laughs) is so joyful. When I try to pitch it to children, I try to say, you know, if you love the sort of sarcastic humour of 
you know, sometimes I say David Walliams, sometimes I say, um, <laughs> you know, Horrid Henry, but you want something more ironical and you want all the magic of Potter, then this is where you should turn. I say something very similar I don't know <laughs> visitors school without being gently evangelical about this book um and how how old were you can you remember how old you were when you first encountered it I think I was about nine I think I read it in one single car journey um I can't read in the car it makes me vomit it made me vomit and I vomited and kept reading it is <laughs> just staggeringly brilliant it's very odd and it trusts you to ride alongside the oddness, to like mount the oddness horse and gallop. <laughs> and I love her wildly for it. When I when I came to All Souls College, um, I was very young, I was 21, and I got given a kind of um, mentor within the college, a brilliant Shakespeare scholar um, called Colin Burrow. And he said, well, what do you want to do with you know, your life. And I said, well, I would like to write children's fiction like Philip Pullman or like Diana Wynne-Jones. And he said, Diana Wynne-Jones is my mother. And it was like the floor just opened in front of me. I never met her, but I often spoke about her with him. And she does sound to have been as spectacular a person as she was a writer. Oh, which is always wonderful to know. I think what you say about trusting readers to go along with the oddness just chimes with everything we've been saying about you know not talking down to young readers because it is a strange book and we we can get spoilery um we are getting into it and, and as, as much as the thing I love Gwendolyn so this for the people who haven't read it it's about two siblings Kat and Gwendolyn who uh I'm do you know what it's funny I'm torn between my intellectual brain wanting to always be able to discuss these books and get into it and do spoilers so we can talk about the cleverness of these books but then there's the bit the librarian in me the reader in me <laughs> who just in case someone hasn't read it doesn't want to give away the joys of it so I'm I, but Gwendolyn the sister is a main character and a child and a, a real piece of work and I remember as a child being so utterly delighted by having such an awful not an awful child in the sort of horrid Henry mode even though those are wonderful in their own right but there's something Diana Wynne-Jones manages to write a sort of do you know what you'll be better at articulating this I'm gonna I'm gonna you put this into words because you know how in Dahl there's a real meanness like a spitefulness mm. and and Diana Wynne-Jones has a way of somehow capturing kind of like nuance and flaws and terrible people without it ever feeling particularly spiteful, uh, which is alchemy, I think. It is exactly extraordinary. So there's Kat, who is a little bit lost, they're orphaned, and he's the younger brother, and he's a little bit at sea. And then there's Gwendolyn, who is this kind of force of not just of nature, a kind of force of human hunger. Yes. So Gwendolyn wants power. Gwendolyn is a child who is bound up with ideas of things like dominance. And she wants to be a queen. She wants mm. to be worshipped. And at no point does she feel like she's not a perfectly plausible vision of what it might be like to be a 12-year-old yeah. girl. A lot of 12-year-old girls bound up with power. A lot of 12-year-old girls would gladly sacrifice their brother's lives in order to rule the world. <laughs> and Gwendolyn, what she does to be spoilery, she finds a way to use cat is secretly 
a, a nine light enchanter but doesn't know she knows that he is she uses his power to get out of the world that they are living in into a world in which she can be queen and there's also a pair of sort of semi-comical but also truly quite insidious dark warlocks who um are trying to take over the world and she organizes that in order to do so they have to have the blood of an innocent child and she organizes it that it should be her little brother and he assumes that she did that knowing that he's got nine lives and knowing that it wouldn't kill him and there's this devastating very swiftly done it's half a page moment where she comes back from her world to tell them oh no you're going to have to kill him multiple times and the book doesn't pause on it very long I think it's partly of course because these books were written in the 80s and 90s Diana Wynne Jones is alas dead and so these days I think your editor would say <laughs> we need to feel the weight of that <laughs> you know, what is cat feeling what are we seeing what are we what are we experiencing here but I love that she has this kind of caustic crispness she just assumes that kids will understand that that would be utterly devastating. And she doesn't feel a need to wallow up to the ankles. She just dips a toe in the horror and, and gallops on. And it is, oh, it's a beautifully done character. Um, also, when Gwendolyn, when she uses her magic to move to a world where she would be the queen, her replacement this is a lot of explaining about the worlds of Christomancy, and I feel like we should have probably like checked the Wikipedia first. <laughs> the worlds fracture when something that could happen or couldn't happen causes the worlds to break apart, like Guy Fawkes. Either they do or they which don't. Week, yes. Which is the, the plot of Witch Week. And so in each of the worlds, there's a version of you, unless you're a Nine of Lives enchanter, in which case there isn't. And her replacement arrives in Cat's world. And she's also brilliant. She's oh, awkward yes. and down to earth and funny and sardonic. And she's from our world. So she also feels more modern. And this kind of idea that they are the same girl, but with different, different histories, different backgrounds, different parents, they've turned out very, very differently. I love that. It's never expressed. She never actually writes that idea. These girls do have the same DNA. She just lets us work that out. Yes. Yeah. It's utterly, it's utterly wonderful, isn't it? It's uh, a book that I never tire of rereading. I think it's probably at this point the book I have reread the most, and it really sustains it. <laughs> it's so joyful. Um. So we we talked about how lots of us right a lot of us kids writers um worship at the altar of Diana Wynne Jones how would you say that she has most impacted you when it comes to your own work I think um she gives us the most valuable permission to approach children's fiction with the full force of your unwieldy imagination mm. you know she doesn't to read her is to see that you don't always have to explain everything. Right. There are often moments um, where everything is a little bit foggy, but what you get is a sense of the emotional importance. She doesn't go into, at the end, when Crestomancy appears and the wizards are defeated. Again, I think in the current moment in which we're writing, there would be a fashion for explaining exactly which spells are used <laughs> to vanquish the baddies. 
and instead everything becomes misty and odd and that kind of freedom I think has a kind of glory in it but most of all it is the sense that she meets her child right reader eye to eye and I think so many of us take inspiration from that that she absolutely trusts that kids will understand I think in one of her interview she says oh no the people who don't understand the books and she doesn't mean it in that cutesy aren't kids wise way she just <laughs> says the people who don't understand the books are often adults that they're reading it they've lost something in the way that they're reading it they're they're reading it perhaps as a, a diktat or a how-to guide and children are reading it as story and understanding that stories are sometimes a little wild and not on anybody's side mm-hmm I, that's such a wonderful way of putting it. It's um, whenever I am writing, and of course I write a series, and I am not, um, I am not a planner, and I sometimes stumble into situations where I have to decide whether to do what would make a better story or what fits with the rules that I have already established. And I do, you know, people wear the what would Jesus do bracelets? Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like I haven't got a, I haven't got to the stage of making <laughs> myself one. I will make but you I, one. Oh, why? Thank you. I do feel like I'm always wearing a um, metaphorical, what would Diana Wynne-Jones do bracelet? Uh, and I think that she is just always that reminder of, you know, not just willfully, <laughs> willfully throwing world building away, but that it's story, got to write the best story. And, and it's something I'm always, it's funny, I, was surprised by this until I remembered that this is how I was as a child and it's what you said like that remembering what you've forgotten you've forgotten isn't it and how so much bit of being a children's writer is being like the children you write for remind you of this as well in that is that children often come to the pages and co in completely the wrong order Uh, but it doesn't really phase them in the slightest and I am always initially was very like oh that's stressful to me but then I used to do that as well and I think it's just you know what you said about the elasticity of children's imaginations is that it's not really a great barrier to enjoying something to read a series in completely the wrong order and I feel like that's sort of also just very much you know the spirit of uh spirit of DWJ worked work quite nicely with the bracelet actually it would it yeah, got the right initials yeah. already going on yeah it would be perfect I will I will get one commissioned um, we could probably make quite a lot of money selling those <laughs> yeah. to other children's authors yeah um the other thing I love about her is something that you do experience you really do in childhood but you understand only in adulthood which is a lot of her characters are really sexy like Crestomancy's objectively oh, hot yes and she so meant much, yes. to be so like she put that in that is not just something that uh we are imagining she a hundred percent right yeah and, you know, the idea that you might put that in a children's book in a book that is easy enough in its in its um in its construct to be tackled by really quite young children you could probably read charmed life at seven or eight although mm-hmm. I would suggest waiting till nine or ten to get the full delight of it but Crestomancy is this tall dark uh wizard who wears exquisite um dressing gowns and talks with the kind of ironical ferocity of like a scholar god Mm. and it's just divine and 
she knew it and I loved it and of course she often has that she has like a, a bit of eros in her children's fiction and I think often when you look back at the fiction that you loved as a kid you realize that you were also experiencing something like desire you know uh, for Crestomancy yeah. many of us for Aslan um <laughs> for you know various wizards in the Harry Potter world um I I love that she does it so unabashedly Yes, it's wonderful. Crestomancy reading as an adult, yes. Crestomancy is quite the character, isn't he? He's he's swooping around in his dressing gowns. It's um it's it's a joy to read. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know when I was rereading it, there's a bit where um names have great importance in, in the book and Crestomancy's is particularly powerful. Um and there's a bit where he 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 has letters and that he someone acquires them and uses that but he has his there's the signature written out and I would be lying if a part of me didn't say oh that'd be quite a cool tattoo and I'm like no I'm gonna stop it's too much you can't have Crestomancy tattooed on you I, I would mean, do you someone know definitely does somewhere in the world someone if else. Diana was still with us and I could somehow get her to write it I would seriously consider that <laughs> I think as a tattoo um but I shall rein in those rein in those urges but that actually touches on another thing that she does so well is the richness of the world the food the clothes you know every dressing gown we get a proper description of it and the food which we are I know that we are united on our love of food uh good food writing especially in children's books and a lot of the food she has that wonderful touch where even the food that isn't rich or glamorous is described so you know the key scene where they're eating bread and butter and marmalade and cocoa and it's just exquisite the way that she writes food I think she she spends a lot of time on it she gives it its due she believes in the senses and uh he hates I forget I think he hates he hates cocoa and so he's trying to sort of strain it through the taste of the marmalade and yes yeah and it just rings so true to you when you're a kid and then when you're an adult looking back it rings so true to you as a memory of what it was to be a kid being forced to eat something you didn't like and trying to invent your ways around it although I should say to people who are new to Diana Wynne Jones the one thing that is um a slight sadness is that there is um she writes food so beautifully but there is some uh fairly rampant fat phobia at times um which is quite common of books written in the 80s and as you say it they these books are products of when they were written um this one is not so bad but which, which week this one has its lines which week is one to perhaps just be <laughs> gentle with yourself with um but uh, it's it's this one. It's in passing. Um, but just if you're new to it, it's that's probably the the only real marker of <laughs> of its eighties roots. Exactly. Um, and Diana Wynne Jones, more generally, uh, was Charmed Life the first of hers that you encountered? Um, and what are some of your other favourites? That was the first one I read, and I loved it so much that when I first became a children's writer, I would promise children that. When I went to schools, I would say, if you read it and you don't like it, write to me and I will send you chocolate in the post. And as a result, I got these wonderful letters for several years saying things like, dear Catherine Rundle, I regret to inform you that I read Charmed Life and and then there'd be an ellipsis and you'd have to turn over the page and it would say, I loved it, um, of course. And then Incredible. there was one child who read it and was like, no, not for me. Um, so I did send that child Oh, chocolate. well done. Well done. <laughs> But um, I think 
if I were prescribing them, I would say read Charmed Life first. And then it would make sense both to read probably the lives of Christopher Chant and um, maybe the magicians of Caprona, which mm-hmm. is another uh, set in a completely different world in Italy, but in the same magical world as Crestomancy. And then I would say go somewhere that is even larger and stranger, something like Fire and Hemlock, mm. um, one of the most extraordinary and and strange children yes. <laughs> that I can think of. Um, and I would, of course, say Howl's Moving Castle. Of course. She had a deal with the Mirzak. So um, it was made into a Studio Ghibli film, a brilliant film. Yes, and which is actually, I think, how a lot of people these days encounter it, come a story her, for exactly. the first time. Yes. yes. Um, I hold that very dear to my heart in part because my academic specialism is John Donne and a John Donne poem, Go and Catch a Falling Star, becomes a spell in the book and not in a heavily laboured way, just in passing in this sort of brilliant erudition that she has. Yes. Um, and I would say that that, that also has a, a very um, gorgeous main character. She wants yes. like, the conference that she keeps being approached by young women who say they long to marry Hal. And she thinks that's absolutely mad. He'd be ghastly to live with. <laughs> um, and yeah. actually, do you know what? Now we're talking about this. I do wonder if Crestomancy was a precursor to your love of done. I feel like <laughs> they're, they're not perhaps dissimilar in... <laughs> right, they've got a similar... Well-dressed, tall, dark... <laughs> smart men I feel like maybe those the roots of John D- your John Dunn appreciation <laughs> and indeed maybe hers because she loved John Dunn oh, her that partner her husband surprised me she um uh, J.A. Burrow was uh, one of the great medievalists of his time ah. he wrote the coursework textbook um oh. you study when you when you studied at some universities um and I think that so she was deeply immersed in the academic world right um and also had a kind of huge confidence of her own um, as she wasn't cowed by academics. And I love this story. I'm sure you've heard it. I'm pretty sure it's about Charmed Life where it was the days of type manuscripts and she sent it off to her editor and they wanted changes that she felt would dumb down the, the sweep and scope of it. So she said, absolutely, can absolutely do that. And she cut up the manuscript into different pieces and taped it together so that the pages were, they looked different, but the actual text was completely untouched. And she sent it back and they said, oh, perfect. Thank you so much. And published it. Um, I And I have actually seen that manuscript which oh, is you? seven oh, stories um oh, so seven stories is the an incredible place a national archive of children's literature and it is both an archive in the traditional sense i know you know this but for, for people listening who might not have encountered seven stories and then it is also the most joyful visitor center uh both in newcastle upon tyne which is where i grew up uh, and last time I visited to do an event for them, they very kindly got their Diana Wynne Jones archive out for me to have uh, a look through. And she left a huge mo- most of her uh, stuff. She left to seven stories, so letters and edits. So um, yes, next time if you're ever yes if you're ever up, well worth the request because they uh, delight in sharing it with other people. <laughs> Um, did you read? I think you did. We, I think we've discussed this because the. I think after Charmed Life, my next favorite is probably The Dark Lord of Dirk Home, which is pa- perhaps more YA than children's. Certainly has some more adult content in there, um, but I think just to. 
I think to finish off, I sort of, one of the things that I really feel like I learned from her is just a joy of, a joy of telling stories. And in Charmed Life, she's less present as a narrator, whereas in some of her books, she's very much consciously kind of telling you a story. But even in the ones where she, there's not that kind of active narrator, there is just that joy of writing for young people, um, which again, my little What Would Diana Wynne Jones bracelet. I feel like that's another thing that I would always sort of, I always try to hold with me. She's the author that is closest to me when I am writing, I think. Mm, I think so. And for so many of us, just that she was forging the way. I think also so important to remember when she was writing. Right. I'm when, you know, there was, there was Narnia and there was Paddington, both of them, magnificent in their own way but people doing the kind of mixture of madcap and (laughs) serious and ironical and complicated and straightforward (laughs) the 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 kind of um the kind of potion that she offered was new and one of the things I love is that she was immediately pretty pretty successful Mm -hmm. and and she wrote in an essay about there was a moment where all of the books were in print and she knew as she walked through a city that some children somewhere would be reading her books and how the thought of it sort of lighted that moment for her. Incredible. And, you know, she then she then fell out of, a lot of them fell out of print for a little while. Um, I think there was a fashion in the 90s for the kind of junk Melvin Burgess gritty realism. Yes. And now they've come back and I am so grateful that they have because I think we cannot afford to lose them, not just for what they tell us about fantasy, not not just their kind of fantastic irreverence about the world of high fantasy. There's that brilliant guide that she wrote to high fantasy where mm, she, yeah. you, will, you will walk in the cold and dark. You will never have a cold or vitamin C deficiency. <laughs> you will eat almost entirely some kind of pottage or stew yeah. that might occasionally get, sort of, you know, sword wounds. Yeah. Um, but she also just told us so much about what it is to interact with children, to trust children, to, to rise to what children are asking of us. Mm. I, I love her for it. I think perhaps I'm hoping that I think there is a um, a generation of children's writers now who of our generation who grew up with mm-hmm. her, who are uh, doing doing our very best to uh, get more people reading her. Um, so if you are new to her, then please go and seek her out. Um, I If this hasn't convinced you, then you're a lost cause. I think, <laughs> <perhaps>. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kate, for coming and talking to us about Charmed Life. Um, I'll put all the details about what Kate's up to, the books we've talked about and what's upcoming uh, in the description. But thank you so much, Kate. Thank you, Anna. Thanks so much for listening to the first episode of Book Wandering. You can find out more information about Catherine and her books and what we talked about below. And you can buy any or all of the books we spoke about via my bookshop.org page. If you enjoyed the episode, then spreading the word would be really appreciated by sharing it online or leaving a review. You can find me at Case Books across social media or you can email me at annajamesauthor at gmail.com. The podcast is produced by Adam Collier with artwork by Hester Kitchen. And next week, I'll be chatting to Gabrielle Zevin about A Little Princess. So do come back next week and listen. And until then, happy book wandering.